Hi, everybody. It's Dr. Eric Corum, founder of AIM7. Welcome back to The Blueprint, where we distill cutting-edge science, leadership, and life skills into simple tactics optimized for your busy lifestyle and goals. Today, we're discussing the alarming obesity epidemic with endocrinologist Dr. Michael Weintraub. With over a decade of clinical experience, Dr. Weintraub reveals the two root causes driving obesity rates higher than ever. He also shares insights on emerging weight loss drugs and what role they may play in this obesity epidemic. Whether you agree with the use of these drugs or not, I think it's important that you listen to gain perspective from all sides of the discussion. But before we get started today, I want to take a moment and thank listener Jay Jogger for their recent review. The title of the review is Most Comprehensive Fitness Podcast, and it reads, the format and content are phenomenal. Eric has a gift of introducing technical content in a very short period of time. Plus, he helps listeners see how all aspects of personhood are interconnected and therefore impact each other. I don't miss an episode. Thank you, Jay, and thank you to the amazing Blueprint community. Your words of encouragement are what keep our team going. All right, now to my conversation with Dr. Weintraub. So let's get right to it. So let's lean in and learn from the best. Michael, the prevalence of obesity and metabolic disease is just skyrocketing. I live in Houston, Texas. I love the people, but it's one of the most obese cities in America. It's sad and it's frightening in some ways. It's growing at an exponential rate. I would love for you to discuss the physiology behind what's driving this obesity epidemic, and then really, what can we do about it? Yeah, you're, you're certainly right, and the prevalence of obesity has grown so much in even the last half century. Since the 1980s, the prevalence of obesity has more than doubled in the United States. That's incredible. Right now, 40% of adults have obesity, three-quarters have overweight or obesity. And it's just rising. By 2040, more than half of our population will be obese. And why does that matter? It it leads to the development of a lot of other chronic conditions. We can get into those, um, but what we really need to figure out is how to stop that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because that really drives up the rate of heart attacks, strokes, and a lot of other medical conditions. Yeah, so what are the drivers? Like, What has been the shift in the past, I don't know, 50 years that is leading to this precipitous incline of obesity? It boils down to two major factors. One is the types of foods that we eat and the access to those foods. And two is our lifestyle. So if we think about nutrition, now more than ever, we have such easy access to highly palatable, very energy-dense foods right around the corner. (laughs) This was not like this 50 years ago, 100 years ago, thousands of years ago, where we had to hike uh, two miles to get that really highly palatable fruit on that tree and climb up the tree, (laughs) which expends energy. That's not the case anymore. We have such energy-dense, high-calorie foods And the other is in terms of our lifestyle, we're now much more sedentary. The vast majority of jobs in this country are sitting at a desk. We're we're doing it right now. A lot of this boils down to a simple, you know, energy in, energy out. If we're consuming so many more calories and then we're not expending them, Mm. then we're going to gain weight. And that's what leads to obesity. Wow. Yeah, it makes total sense. We're in these densely populated areas. You just hop in your car, you go to the grocery store, you come back. 
you know, you don't have to walk anywhere to even purchase food. Even if you go back to the 1800s, maybe there's a county store that you get your grain and you're going to have to walk there and you have to come back. And then you're, we're more an agrarian society. Now we're knowledge workers. We're hacking away at our keyboards, which isn't bad, right? It's just what it is. And this has afforded us incredible medical system technologies that saves lives, but it's also creating problems that maybe we just didn't quite anticipate. So as somebody that studies this, that's kind of in the epicenter of research, what can we do about driving this down and how, you know, me as a father of three kids, I think about my children and their peer groups. What can we do from a tactical perspective to start pushing back on obesity? Yeah, I mean, the number one thing, I mean, you're pointing out your kids, the number one thing that we have to do is prevent it. Number one, treatment of obesity is, well, let's prevent it from happening in the first place. And that starts with children, with our kids. And it's thinking about, well, how can we adjust our lifestyle to really avoid those highly palatable, you know, really tasty, high calorie foods? And, and how can we incorporate more activity in our day? You know, I'm sure you know about in terms of energy expenditure, thinking about even outside of our active exercise, there is the non-exercise activity. And how can we increase that? Like what you're saying, can we, you know, take the flight of stairs every day? Can we take a break during lunch, go for a walk, do a lot of things that can incorporate activity even in our day, in addition to increasing our inner exercise and increasing our physical capabilities? What do you do? Well, I guess I'm living in New York City. I mean, you're you're in a tough spot. (laughs) Right. We have a car and we don't use it because the easiest thing to do is kick in a subway. We're going down the subway stairs. We're going back up them. That really is, you know, expending calories, expending energy. And really incorporating, you know, trying to make it a regular physical activity, some type of exercise really counts. And then also thinking about, well, how can I not stock my pantry with high carbohydrate, really high calories, processed foods, and instead make it really easy to eat more nutritious, less calorie dense foods. You know, those things are things that I try to incorporate uh, and I tell others to, to try to incorporate into their life. I mean, to be honest, this sounds like very common sense stuff, right? Why aren't people doing this? I mean, if we know that we're our health is suffering, if we know that we're going to probably die an early death or our health span sucks, I like how Peter Tia puts it like the last decade of your life is just awful. You don't want to, they call it, he calls it the marginal decade, but like I'm an entrepreneur. I went from working in sports where I was active all the time to now I'm at home. And so, like, personally, I have to deliberately move. So I start my day every day with almost close to a two mile walk. I just get up and I walk out the door and I just walk because I'm like, let's just accrue some steps to start the morning. I recently on an Amazon Prime day did get one of these little walking treadmill desks. And then I just get up and walk around several times a day around the block. But I don't know, I guess I'm a little bit more self-disciplined, but I don't know if most Americans are going to start doing this. I mean, I don't think there's a hack or a shortcut. Is it you just got to do what you got to do? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's we are a creature of our evolutionary origin. And we have evolved to crave those things with salt, sugar, fat, lots of calories. And why did we evolve like this? Well, if we think, you know, go back hundreds of years, thousands of years in times of, you know, when there was food scarcity and we had a lot of famines. Those who craved, who had that thrifty gene, who craved those extra foods and packed on the extra calories, well, they survived that famine and they survived to pass on their genes. And that worked up until the modern era. 
where everything changed. <laughs> so we are a victim of our own success in that sense. And so we really have to do a lot of changes, at least even on a public health standpoint, you know, how, what changes can we make to our society to really reverse this? So this brings me to my next question. Everybody's looking for a shortcut. You know, when you sell a product, there's ways to create value for people. One is to show them like, you know, all the pain it's going to solve you. And then you show all the people that have had this amazing success. But really what it comes down to is compressing time. Solutions that bring the end result down to near zero always wins. And that's how like Netflix, Amazon, these companies win because like now with Amazon, I can push, I literally just click one button I've purchased and it's on my way. Now we've just lowered all the friction. Is that why we're seeing this massive rise in these new weight loss drugs is because people just don't want to put in the work and they'd rather inject themselves? That's one way of looking at it. I think the appropriate use or the appropriate way of conceptualizing obesity and deciding on which intervention, which treatment is optimal Mm -hmm. is thinking about, well, what's our level of risk? What's our level of risk of developing all the comorbidities, all the complications of obesity? Mm-hmm. So when someone is, you know, this is how I think about it and conceptualize it. If someone has already developed high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, they are already at such a higher risk of developing strokes and heart attacks. Mm-hmm. And yes, it would be great if they can enroll in a lifestyle program and try to reverse their changes uh, or make changes and lower their weight that way. Unfortunately, every, every single study that's looked at lifestyle changes and has shown weight loss, they unfortunately have this inevitable weight regain. And that goes back to our body's physiology. We have this body weight set point that is in our brain. We lose that weight and we intentionally do so. Our body doesn't know we intentionally lost that weight. It thinks that there's a famine. And so it works really hard at increasing our cravings, increasing our appetite, making our body more efficient when we do physical activity and we regain that weight. That's baked into our genes. That's where we have to think about, you know, what is the best intervention for somebody depending on their level of risk to prevent heart attacks, prevent strokes. Let's be honest, there is a ton of junk science out there right now and unrealistic and impractical recommendations being made to busy people like you and me for how to improve our health and wellness. That's why I put together a weekly newsletter called Adaptation. Every Friday, I send out a free email with curated information and resources for your mind, body, and recovery to help you look, feel, and perform your best. These are actionable tips you can use today. So sign up now. The link is in the show notes. I would say one thing. I did see a paper on like people that do have long-term weight loss. There is research demonstrating that people do lose weight and keep it off, but there's a commonality between those folks, and it's that they had an identity change from a psychological perspective. Like if you want to become an entrepreneur and you're you're like, I am now an entrepreneur and I'm going to do the things that entrepreneurs do. People that lose weight and keep the weight off say like, I am a healthy person and I actually do the things that healthy people do. This is in the literature. I'll find the paper for you. I saw it recently. I was like, man, this is fascinating. It was highlighted by Dr. Lane Norton, one of his, actually somebody that he had kind of pushed to like do the research on this. She went out and got a doctoral degree and then did this really great meta-analysis on the psychology of long-term weight loss. You say that 
some people shouldn't expect though, if they take one of these medications that they're going to keep the weight off. If they do it for a short period of like six, eight, 12, even 24 weeks, do you think the weight's going to come back? Is it because they haven't changed their underlying behavior? Yes. Uh, in the sense that what do a lot of these medications do? They act on the appetite centers of our brain to lower that body weight set point. That's when the appetite lowers until we get to that, whatever that new plateau is, mm-hmm. that new weight. And then that's when their body equilibrates. And then that's their plateau when they're taking that medication. If they stop the medication, then their body weight set point goes right back up to where it was before. And our appetite increases. And that's how someone regains the weight. <laughs> it sounds like the answer is to stay on this stuff forever. Well, the answer is, as you pointed out already, that whatever that intervention that is made has to be chronic. If that is running marathons every day, then they got to do that. If that's you know changing their behavior, their lifestyle, their personality, their identity, as you're pointing out, and making those drastic changes, that's amazing. And that has to be chronic. And some people, it does work. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of people, it doesn't. And that's where we have to think about what other interventions are useful to prevent cardiovascular disease and all those risk factors that can happen. So somebody that's an expert on the subject, for the average person, it just sounds to me like, and I don't like to go back to that simple formula of eat less and exercise more, because it's just, it oversimplifies things to a point. But the reality is, is there has to be long-term behavior change around the basic things that are driving health, movement, food choices, sleep, you can probably put in that bucket because of the dramatic impact it can have on even our ability, you know, leptin and ghrelin and, you know, people that are sleep deprived overeat consistently. So if you were to dream up the future, if you kind of have an idea of where things are going and where you think the most successful protocols are going to be, is it going to be a blend? Is it going to be like, hopefully there's a blend of like somebody's obese, let's use something like this along with some type of behavioral modification with tracking and new behavior change and then slowly titrate them off of the medication and then hopefully they can because this stuff's expensive yeah ultimately it's individualizing the treatment for the person sitting in front of us and there's it comes into three buckets there is the what lifestyle changes can we make what medication options are there and then what surgical options are there yeah uh, and then talking through what is the optimal combination of those three strategies for that particular person. Gotcha. What do you see the future of obesity? I don't want to say medication, but therapeutics. What do you think the future is going to look like? Yeah. I mean, you know, ultimately we treat obesity as a chronic medical condition, just like high blood pressure, just like high cholesterol. And just like high blood pressure, just like high cholesterol, if we give them a medication, we're controlling that hypertension, that high LDL, and we're lowering that risk for cardiovascular disease. It's the same exact thing for weight. Obesity is a chronic condition. It's a chronic disease, and we have to treat it that way. So a combination of lifestyle and medications, if that lowers someone's coronary artery disease risk, that's perfect. And so it's dialing up, dialing down each of those uh, things, working with that person to figure out what's the best to lower that what we call residual risk, that risk of developing coronary artery disease. Is there anything that's capturing your attention right now of interesting projects that are going on or research that you find promising? Yeah, I mean, so the media has has caught up on GLP-1 agonists as well. 
So we've had these nutrient-based hormones. They're basically hormones that stimulate hormones that we produce when we're full. So they act on the appetite centers of our brain to reduce our appetite. And they've also shown to, you know, not too long ago, and just a couple of weeks ago, uh, there's been studies that have shown a reduction in cardiovascular disease mortality. Mm -hmm. And that's great. As somebody who treats, uh, you know, I'm an endocrinologist by training. Uh, my goal is for someone to live as long and as productive a life as I can. These medications, if they can reduce those levels of risk, as well as improve their osteoarthritis, as well as make it easier for them to be active and run around with their grandchildren, mm -hmm. then that's phenomenal. And so that's really the overall goal. So medications like these GLP-1 agonists and related incretin-based medications really have are a advance in the tools that we have to treat this chronic disease. You mentioned, we've talked before offline, but if somebody's interested in educating themselves more, you mentioned the Endocrine Society is something that you would recommend. It has great resources. Also, you have a, a Twitter. I'll put that account. I'll put that in the, uh, actually, it's X now. It's really hard to get out of my vernacular. I think that was the worst branding mistake ever. But yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. Anything else for how people can connect with you or learn more about obesity, how to push back on this chronic disease, and maybe information they could help with their, you know, they could pass off to their friends and family? Yeah, I mean, the, the Obesity Society also has great resources. You can look up what type of providers in your area that is knowledgeable of the different treatments of obesity and, and really, you know, can hook somebody up with not only medications, dietitians, other resources to really treat this condition. Well, Michael, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. And thank you for sharing a lot of the stuff you see in the media, but you're like, what is really going on here? And I, I love talking to actual practitioners that are experts in their field. So thank you so much for sharing this today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Before you go today, if the blueprint has made an impact in your life, please take a moment, push pause and leave us a rating and review on whichever listening platform you are joining us from, because this is how you can pay it forward to help somebody else. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you on the next episode.